This is a crowd podcast. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is the podcast that gives you leadership insights from some of the biggest names in sport. And this episode, I catch up with one of the most successful sailors of all time, with an incredible four Olympic gold medals to his name, Sir Ben Ainsley. The external pressures have never really bothered me that much because my own standards have been high enough that I'll always push myself to the limit. It's true that you learn as much through your failures as you do through your successes. It took me a while to realize the effect I was having on others because I was my own worst critic that then rubbed onto the rest of the team. And, you know, if I wasn't happy about something, I'd certainly let them know about it. You know, I would have seriously pissed a few people off. Hi everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you've been enjoying Captain so far. Today we've got our first Sir on the show, Ben Ainsley, one of Britain's greatest Olympians. I'm a huge fan of the Olympics, and my first memory was Sydney 2000. And though I've never been sailing myself, Ben was seemingly ever-present on the podium. Sailing can be a dangerous sport, and I think that it requires a unique version of captaincy and leadership. Having to battle against the elements out at sea, as well as rival crews, a certain mindset is required, and we go into that in this chat. Ben is now skipper, team principal, and CEO of Ineos Britannia, as they look to win the America's Cup, And those are leadership roles on a different scale, with huge teams of people working behind the scenes to optimise performance on the water. It's a different world compared to what most of us are used to, and it's fascinating stuff. Ben talks a lot about the transition from competing as an individual to being part of and then leading a team and the struggles that come with that, particularly having an awareness of how your reaction can affect the entire team. I think there's some really good takeaways there that we can all learn from. Enjoy the episode with Sir Ben Ainsley. Ben, thanks for joining us. The shoe is on the other foot now. You're used to asking the questions on your very own podcast, Performance People. So how's that going? Oh, no, it's it's great. Sam, thanks for having me along. And yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing how it's taken off, isn't it, really, the, the pods. And such a great way to learn from other sports people, teams, businesses, everyday life. I mean, it's just such a great um, wealth of material out there now to um, help all of us in our everyday lives. So yeah, good to be with you. Thanks. Yeah, no, I encourage people to listen to yours as well, because obviously you've got some fascinating insights. That's why I'm so pleased to get you onto our podcast as well. Where are you in the world right now? I'm down in Palma in Mallorca, which is where we have our testing base for our America's Cup team. It's actually bloody cold this time of the year as it has been in the rest of sort of northern Europe so we have a little 40 foot test boat which we get out as much as we can weather dependent so you're you're skipper now uh, team principal at Ineos Britannia for those who don't know what roles and responsibilities does that entail Uh, we'll touch upon the Olympics which I think a lot of people are well aware of but you've got this really exciting venture that you've been doing the last few years what's your roles and responsibilities there well, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more than that because we have two, we effectively have two sailing teams. We have Ineos Britannia, which, as you said, is the America's Cup team. Yeah. And then kind of alongside that, we have SailGP GBR. As the name suggests, it's a little bit, it's sort of sailing's version of Formula One, if you like. Mm. And so, yeah, like I said, that sits alongside the America's Cup, which is this incredibly technical space race, really. I mean, the, the amount of effort that design teams are putting into trying to design and develop the fastest boats is just phenomenal. Mm. 
and we we now have a partnership with Mercedes Formula One team to help us with that technical program. But to answer your question, my job, I, I'm the CEO of, of both of those teams. So it's really trying to pull them together and manage. We've got really strong management team in, in both of the teams and to pull that together, try and set the, the, the targets, the standards for the teams. And then the bit that I really love doing is actually the sailing bit, which is when I get to go out on the water with the, with the rest of the team and, you know, sail these boats with regards to the America's Cup. Obviously, we go through years and years of testing and development with SailGP. We're out there on the race course month in, month out. So it's pretty full on. How did you get into sailing and how influential were your family in those early years? My, I grew up in Cheshire, actually, near Macclesfield. And so about as far away from the sea as you can get in the British Isles. But my parents were really keen, passionate sailors. They used to sail up in North Wales at weekends and, and so on. And I was very fortunate. When I was about eight years old. My family uh, up sticks and moved down to Cornwall, beautiful part of the world, lots of access to the water. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. But my dad was absolutely pivotal in all of that, being passionate about the sport. And the first time I went sailing in a dinghy on my own and and there's a boat called an Optimus which most kids around the world learn to sail in it looks a little bit like a bathtub it goes about as fast as you would imagine a bathtub would go in water with a sail on it so not not it doesn't perform too well <laughs> but it's uh, it's quite a stable platform so it's great for kids to learn to sail in it was wooden it had a bumper ring around it so if you crashed into anything which invariably I did a lot and and unfortunately still do from time to time <laughs> Um, you, you weren't going to do too much damage. I would have been about eight or nine years old. I was in my duffel coat and Wellington boots, no life jacket, no <laughs> safety boats, no nothing. And uh, my dad pushed me off. I remember turning around to my dad and saying, well, what happens if I capsize this thing? You know, he said, oh, I, I don't know. I think you just jump on the centerboard and pull the thing up and you might have to, you're going to have to bail the water out and stuff like that, you know. But you'll, you'll be all right, don't worry. We're going to go for the pub for lunch. You know, you make your way up there and we'll, we'll see you up there for lunch. And that was it. Off I went. <laughs> it was insane. How old are you? How old are you oh, at this I was, point? Uh, eight, eight or nine years old. Wow. I mean, you, you wouldn't, there's, you know, there's no way I would set one of my kids off at eight or nine years old, particularly, with, obviously, without any <laughs> safety kit. Um, but that was, those were the days, you know. And the other sensation was just the first time getting underway on this boat and the sensation of, of freedom, of being in control of a sailing boat, no one telling me what to do, no adults telling me go left, right, or, you know, to, to, to do anything. I was in total control. So that sense of freedom. And also the sensation of the water rippling under the hull of the boat. Um, you know, I can still remember that feeling, you know, to this day. It was just such a sort of liberating sensation, really. Already that sort of tells me that, I mean, most eight-year-old boys would be terrified on the water. I'm 34 and I'd probably be too, too terrified to do that. No. Did you have a certain mindset, do you think, that was, a, that was different for a normal eight-year-old? Because to do that, and I've seen what it's like from point-of-view cameras when people are on the boats, it can be a pretty daunting thing to be out there on the water. Did you have a different mindset, do you think, when you were younger compared to other, other children your age? Yeah, I, th I think I had some kind of mad determination um, and I say, Matt, I'm not sure there was much sense to it. The local sailing club, which I eventually got down to and joined, and I, I took my, my little optimist dinghy down there, they, they'd see me coming and they'd, they'd 
have to launch another rescue boat. <laughs> so like, oh no, he's back again. We're going to have to put the other rescue boat in the water because I didn't know how to turn this boat around. So I'd rip off, you know, across to the other side of the estuary. They were very patient. And I had this sort of, you know, crazy determination that I, I was going to go out. Yeah, I guess, but you need that. It's the same in every sport, isn't it? You need, you know, you know that comes through quite early whether a youngster's got the determination to really push themselves. Where do you think that came from? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I struggled a little bit at school. I wasn't that academic and I used, well, I still do suffer from a, a sun allergy with my skin, but it was worse when I was a kid. I used to flare up with really bad rashes. So I kind of got picked on a little bit because of that. And so I was quite shy and withdrawn and introverted. And I suppose sailing was really my release from all of that. And like I said, I was out on my own, sailing on my own. So no one really giving me a hard time or telling me what to do so I could make it up myself. And so that was, I guess, where the passion came from and, and through that passion, a bit of determination. Moving on to the Olympics, was there an age you vowed to become an Olympian or was it something that you discovered later on in your teenage years? I obviously was aware of the Olympics growing up. I think the first Olympics I, I would have watched on telly would have been Seoul in 88 and then certainly Barcelona in 92. At that point, I was sort of racing nationally and, and had started doing a few international events. I was, I guess you could say, in the top grade in the, in, in the country for my age. But I had no illusions then of, of doing the Olympics or anything like that. I just loved the sport and it was quite a pivotal moment, really. I would have been about 13 years old. I, I did a local club race. I don't know, things hadn't gone well. I kind of made a mess of it or whatever and, and sort of had semi-given up. And I, I still finished the race, but I wasn't, you know, I was a long way behind and, and wasn't really putting a, enough effort into it. Anyway, I went home at the end of the day and having dinner with my dad and, you know, he's pretty canny. He said, oh, yeah, how did you get on today? Did you have a good race? Was it a good session? And I sort of said, oh, well, yeah, I didn't do very well, but I was really unlucky and this didn't happen and that happened. And of course, he'd been watching the race, hadn't he? And uh, he said, yeah, well, actually, I happened to watch. I, I saw that you, you you gave up. And he said, you can't, you know, you're at the level now that if you really want to go all the way in this sport, I think you can. And I'll support you and the, our family will support you, you know, your mum and your sister and lots of travelling around the country and at weekends and giving up our time. But we're only going to do that if you're prepared to put in 100% and really give it your best shot. And that really struck a chord and I really appreciated that. And from then on in, I just committed myself 100% to be the best sailor I possibly could be. So in 96 Atlanta, you're 19 years old and you win a silver medal, which for most people would be an astonishing achievement, be really proud of it. How did you perceive that? Was that a success or did it provide you motivation to want to do more and chase a gold? It was everything. Well, it was, you know, huge success, but also in some ways failure and definitely motivation to uh, come back four years later and try and get the gold. I read a quote where you said, it may have been the best thing that ever happened to me. If I won a gold at 19, maybe everything that goes with being a gold medalist at such a young age would have distracted me and I would have lost a bit of focus. Instead, it really fired me up to try and set the record straight in Sydney. Do you still stand by that, that it was a good experience, that what happened to you in 96? Well, look, I would much rather won the gold and, and, and be sitting here with a different record. But in some ways, yeah, because, you know, remember back then we didn't really have many success in Olympics and, and that games, it was only Redgrave and Pinson that won the gold. Back then I was very shy, very introverted. It, let's just say I had won a gold medal, I was being thrust into the limelight. 
I don't think I would have dealt with it particularly well because I'm just, certainly then I wasn't that kind of person. And, and it certainly did, as you said, it motivated me massively to, um, to fight back and try and win that goal, which was just as tight a tussle four years later in Sydney. But that time I managed to come out on the right side of it. Well, it was remarkable. You went on to win four golds in a row, you know, four consecutive Olympic Games after 96. How do you find or how did you cope with that level of dedication, commitment? And I always think that the great sportsmen like yourself, you have longevity, you know, in the sport. How did you find coping with that being at the pinnacle for so long? I was very fortunate to after Sydney get involved with the America's Cup. And so that really opened up a different avenue of the sport for me. Um, sailing, being part of a big team and being part of a technical development programme. And that really was how my career progressed, trying to marry America's Cup with Olympics. I remember winning the gold and being just absolutely elated and the relief, more sense mm. of relief than actually joy. Because you, you know what it's like, you work so hard for something and to achieve it, just the relief that it's been worthwhile and you've, you've ticked that box. I remember getting on the plane home and sort of kicking back. So obviously a long flight back from Sydney to, to the UK. By the end of the flight, I was already thinking, well, actually, no, what, what, what am I going to do next? What's the next challenge? And that's just the way it is. It doesn't stop, does it? Those pressures and the pressure of competition, I always think are, are, are internal, aren't they? I mean, the external pressures have never really bothered me that much because my own sort of expectations and standards I'd like to think have been high enough that I'll always push myself to the limit to try and achieve that. And as a sports person, if, if you can come away, win or lose with your head held high, that you've given it absolutely everything, that, that's all you can ask for. Did you like people looking up to you and did you like taking that step forward to be a leader or did you like to be one of the team? I found there was moments in my career where sometimes I felt... I just want to be one of the team, step back and just focus on performance. And then some guys just love being in that leadership type role. Where did you fit into that camp? It took me a while, actually, you know, as I said, coming out from single-handed sailing to then working within a team and, and ultimately leading a team. Hmm. It took me a while to realise the effect I was having on others because I was my own worst critic. And if things went wrong, I was very hard on myself internally. And then that then starting to work with a team that then rubbed onto the rest of the team. And, you know, if I wasn't happy about something, I'd certainly let them know about it. But, you know, probably to a negative impact. So it took me a while to realise the effect I was having on those around me and that I had to rein it in a bit and actually support though, you know, if something had gone wrong, wherever the problem was, support it and try and find a solution rather than just having a rant and a rave about it, which is what we all might do internally to ourselves if we cock something up but in a team environment as you know better than I do probably that that's not all that helpful I read somebody and somebody was talking about you um who knows you well and they said that you're intensely competitive do you think that was sometimes or did you find there were but there were people not as competitive as you and they probably found you maybe maybe not not to a detriment I think it's a good trait they maybe found you too intense to deal with and is that what you're talking about that you had to rein back because you wanted it so much almost yeah, ab absolutely. And realising that the team necessarily can't operate at the intensity of an individual. I mean, it can to a certain extent, and it's different with different sports, isn't it? You know, in your in your sport or in football, you know, perhaps an individual can just step up and for an individual act of brilliance, turn a game on its head. In sailing, when you've got a squad and a boat, 
everyone's relying on one another, there's not really any one act of brilliance that's going to sort of make or break it. So you've you've got to sort of set the tone at something. The, the the intensity of the team's got to be something that everyone on on board the boat can match, and and probably that's where I was getting it wrong in the earlier years of getting into team sailing. So it's subtle though, isn't it? It's very subtle because you you can't just cruise around and accept substandard. So it's a, it's a difficult balance to find. I, I found the same, actually. Cause there was times I used to play and think, you know what, I wouldn't mind being an individual athlete because there was other people not doing kind of, or they weren't behaving like I wanted them to behave. But like you say, as you get older, you sort of figure those things out. I'm going to dive into your captain's compass now. So everyone's is different. There's no right or wrong. But what would be your four key principles of your leadership if you had to create your own compass? Well, I would say work ethic. You know, you've got to lead from the front, haven't you? And you can't expect others to do what you're not. So yeah, showing that you're willing to put in whatever it takes, that that's really key. Um, empathy, for sure. Like we've just been talking about, understanding... Yeah. the the team that's around you and what people's individual strengths are or what their weaknesses are and supporting them through that is is absolutely key um you know setting the the targets the goals and and trying to make sure they're realistic yeah because it's you know if you're just you know stretching for something that's just unobtainable then you're going to struggle to take the team with you so you know making people feel part of that journey i think is important as well if you if you can do that and uh trying yeah. trying somehow in these intense sporting <laughs> world that we're in, trying to make it fun. I think that's great. On the empathy point, was there a moment that you realised maybe your reaction was too much? You said about sometimes you were maybe a bit too intense. Do you recall moments where you thought, oh, looking back, maybe I was a bit too intense on that occasion? Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, a few one humorous moment with a really good friend of mine who was, uh, who was our bowman on the boat, and he's a lovely guy. Um, wouldn't say boo to a goose and if you can imagine you're pushing another boat into the start so he's only maybe feet or inches away from the back of the other boat and this yeah he'd say oh oh say to the other boat oh you know come on old chap you know time for you to move you know you should really be moving now so you know <laughs> cat cat flaps his name he'd probably laugh and say but so cat flap seriously you got to get stuck into these guys you got to scream at them you got to you know f and blind and scared the living daylights out of these guys. Oh, okay, okay. So the next race, we come in against a French team, and he's screaming at these guys and ranting and raving. Anyway, we do the race, and we come back to the dock, and these French sailors come up, and they say to this guy, Cap Flap, what has happened to you? You used to be, you used to be such a nice guy, and now you're just an asshole. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, there's... That that's a kind of humorous anecdote, but yeah, definitely there were times when when I I lost my temper with someone, and and you could see that this person just wasn't reacting well, and you know it it takes a bit of time as 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 someone leading a team to work that out and realize that actually that's not helping them, it's not helping you, it's not helping anyone, and especially in the heat of the battle, right? You can't suddenly if you're just ranting and raving and everyone's shouting at one another, it's you know it's, you got to try and keep it calm as calm as you can do and calculated and 
and focus on, again, going back to what are your core principles, what's your training, what are your processes in those high-pressure moments, that's where you're going to fall back on, isn't it? I, I do love your mindset. And uh, this story sort of makes me laugh because I love it. In 2012, so it was London, you know, Home Olympics, your rivals teamed up when you're really in the competition and you said, and you're quoted saying, they've made a big mistake, they've made me angry and you don't want to make me angry. Is, is there truth in that? And if so, I, I love it. I love the sort of outspoken nature of that, just to let them know that they've ruffled the wrong feathers. Yeah, well, it's on record, so I can't really lie and say <laughs> it never happened. It did. These two guys I was racing against, a Dutchman, PJ Posmer and Jonas Christensen from Denmark, great guys, great sailors, and we were really close, the three of us. And we went around a turning mark. You're not allowed to hit a turning mark in, in sailing, in, well, in, in Olympic sailing at least. And came round, and I was close to the mark, but I didn't hit it. And yeah. you know when you, you, you hit, you know. And they said, oh, you hit the mark, you hit the mark, you've got to do penalty turns. And there were two of them. So in that instance, if that went to a jury and there's two of them, so there's one protest and then another one witnessing, you're going to lose. So... I had to take the penalty turns, but I was them furious because it was just a you know bullshit play by those guys, and um, and so anyway that that seriously wound me up and, and motivated me. Um, so I managed to overtake him in a race and was still on the back foot points wise. And you know sometimes I've always found in my career sometimes you need something to to just push you a little bit and to fight against, and that that was the trigger really for me. So I. I you know, rightly or wrongly, I tried to send a bit of a message to them through the media that that was a mistake. And it, and it, it was a mistake in the end. Do you have a ruthless streak? Do you think you need that in life, sport or business to succeed? Uh, yes. Um, less. So, I mean, not less so now, but I think the one thing I've realised over time and as I've matured is, you know, definitely has been instances in the past where I've overstepped the line with that. Not that I've broken any rules or anything like that but in terms of relationships with peers and competitors where you know I would have seriously pissed a few people off as you mature you realize it's quite a small world and if you're going to do that if you're going to be ruthless you know you there's a time and a place but it's really got to be for the right reasons and you got to accept that there'll be repercussions from that so I think that's a big thing I've learned but yeah ultimately in sport I guess in business to a certain extent but it's slightly different in business but in sport there are times, as you know, where you do have to be ruthless if you're going to get across the line at, at those critical moments. How important is that now in your role as CEO? I guess sport has probably teed you up really nicely and put you in a lot of situations where you've had to deal with adversity. How much can you transfer into that role now as CEO? Well, definitely adversity, yeah. I mean, particularly with, with the America's Cup, it's a tough game. And technically, it's very, very tough. And, you know, this is our third campaign we ultimately haven't got the job done in the previous two campaigns. We've made a big step forwards now with Mercedes F1 helping us on on the design side. So, yeah, the, ultimately there's been a lot of learning through not achieving what we set out to achieve. And that is true, that you learn as much through your failures as you do for your successes. Outside of that direct sporting element of making some really cutthroat decisions, which you have to do from time to time on a sporting pitch, uh, from a business perspective or a management perspective, actually, I found trying to collaborate and, and not making a cutthroat decision, which might benefit you in the short term, longer term, you're probably going to end up in a, in a better place if, you know, there's ways to get to an outcome, isn't there? And if you can do that by actually bringing people together 
and finding a solution rather than just going, you know, screw the opposition, this is what we're doing and damn the consequences, um, which is perhaps what I maybe would have done, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. I think if you can find that collaborative solution, it'll be better longer term. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Sir Ben Ainsley. Managing up is something that is often overlooked in leadership roles. The INEOS founder is Sir Jim Ratcliffe, an extremely successful businessman and someone who is used to getting results. How have you found navigating that relationship? It's been fascinating. It really has. I mean, like you say, incredibly successful businessman and business around him. I remember the the first meeting we had was at a bar in central London and we got along really well, shared a lot of the same sort of traits, of, you know, no nonsense, determined. The next meeting I had, I was sat in a room with, I think, four or five lawyers, a couple from my side and two or three from the INEOS side. At that point, I was asking myself the question, what the hell is going on? What am I doing sitting in this room with a bunch of lawyers? But that was part of the process. And as Jim said afterwards, that was part of the test to see whether I could actually handle that process. And, you know, as Ineos would say, you either are the kind of people and business that can tolerate that, that can fit into their mould, or you're not. And that gets found out pretty quickly. And the thing, the reason why Ineos are so successful is they're totally focused on, on results. There's no bullshit and so you learn a lot, you know, getting to spend time with people like Jim. And he has an amazing ability to sniff out bullshit. I don't think I've ever met anyone <laughs> who has that ability. So if you're not on top of your game, he, he, he works it out pretty quickly. And then, and then he'll dig into it and then you're in a lot of trouble. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a fascinating experience and um, I've learned a huge amount from it. Did you enjoy that test of being put in that room? Um, well, initially I was kind of a bit pissed off I have to be honest because I said hang on you know we're going to do this cup team and now you're suddenly asking all of these questions and got all these lawyers involved and you know what the hell's going on but then you know like I say I realized it was obviously due diligence from a business perspective but also a little bit of a, a test to try and work people out and actually now in business if I was looking to to get involved with something, you know, you should be putting that much rigor, um, which is a which is a very popular term in Ineos, into something. So initially I found it a little bit, I was a little bit taken aback. Now I can see, you know, why that was the case and actually have learned a lot from it. America's Cup. It's an amazing competition which predates the modern Olympics by 45 years, I think I'm right in saying. Give us a, a brief explanation of what the America's Cup is. Yeah, so the America's Cup started in 1851, race around the Isle of Wight. I think I'm going to get this wrong, but there were, you know, a dozen or so British boats. And anyway, an American boat came over called America, of course. <laughs> and it was in a delivery trim, so not much sail area, quite a lot of ballast, etc. And it lined up against one of the local boats that was in race trim. The local boat started panicking. And anyway, this American boat trounced the local fleet took it back to uh, New York Harbour and renamed it the America's Cup, of course. And so that's where the whole thing started. And since then, it's just been this incredible competition of 
design technology, obviously sailing and the competitive sailing is a part of that, but the technology is the key and that's what drives it. That's what makes it fascinating. The rules are incredibly complex, which basically creates a lot of power for the winner of the event. So whoever wins the cup basically decides where and when and in what type of boat the next event is. So it's a bit like winning the Rugby World Cup and then saying, actually, you know what, we're going to change the pressure in the ball and we're going to add another couple of players to the squad and we're going to make the pitch another 10 metres longer. (laughs) So it puts a lot of power into the defender and that's why it's so difficult to win. Despite hosting the first event, Britain's never won it. So that's that's the motivation for us as a British team is to right that wrong in our sporting history and get the cup back home. I want to dive into 2013. You were racing for Oracle Team USA and you obviously have the success of the Olympics, five Olympics in a row. And then you have probably what is one of the most incredible sporting comebacks of, of all time when, when you're 8-1 down and you bounce back to win 9-8. Can you remember what was being said at those moments when you're 8-1 down, 8-2 down, 8-3 down? Because that just seems almost like a, a mountain that nobody can climb. But to have that determination to come back, can you take us back to those moments and what it felt like as a team? Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's actually, it goes way back before the actual competition um, and it's a great story in sort of dealing with adversity and coming back from a pretty hopeless position. So I was racing with Oracle, which were the defending team, and said they were in the hot seat in terms of writing the rules and changing the boats. So we'd come from what had been a traditional monohull background in America's Cup to multi-hull, so catamarans and trimarans and that sort of thing. So it was a completely new class of boat. We had, it's fair to say, and I don't think anyone would have the nose push out joint to say that it was a hadn't been a good campaign by any stretch of the imagination. There'd been a lot of problems with the design of the boat, equipment failures. There was a a scandal involving a smaller boat that we'd been using for a World Series that were entered out of class. And so some of the sailors in the team were banned from the competition. We'd had this awful moment where, you know, Andrew Simpson, who's one of my, my great mates, was killed in a training accident when the boat crashed. So really, really, yeah, not a great year at all and not a great campaign. And then, like you say, we were 8-1 down. The whole thing looked hopeless. But the only thing that we had you could use as motivation was the fact that this was a completely new class of boat that no one had ever sailed before. So the potential for gains in performance were just massive. So that's, in any sport, that's a phenomenal gain in performance. And that's really what we focused on and is what turned things around for us. Did you have any members of the group who might have been negative or were sort of admitting defeat or were you all still gung-ho to win? It was it was really fascinating because we're all re- you know we're all realistic about the situation we were in. Like you say, it got to 8-1 down. Mm. So the Kiwis only needed one more race win and they were home and dry. And I remember Russell Coots, who was our CEO and, you know, tremendously successful sailor in his own right in the America's Cup as a skipper and helmsman. He was the CEO, like I say, at the time. I remember sitting with him and he, you know, he was joking, you know, if you guys win from here. So I remember we held him to this. He said, if you guys can win from here, I'm paying for you all to go on holiday to Hawaii for a month. Oh, really? I'm like, okay, okay, good. We'll get that in writing. And um, so, but it was quite kind of... and. 
this siege mentality that you hear about in sport a lot, don't you? That you're on the back foot. You've got to basically win every other race. You know you're in a really dire situation, but you just knuckle down and, and get on with it. And it was impressive. And, you know, I race with some of the people in that team now and, and against them. You know, I'm certain down the road we will, whenever we're together, we will we'll think about that competition. And, and it was special to be part of that team and that turnaround. What had been an underperforming team that wasn't really gelling coming together suddenly somehow through that adversity did come together and did start working together in a serious manner not just the sailing team but the design team the technical team you know the boat builders who were the ones pulling all-nighters to make the modifications to the boat to get the extra performance it was amazing how the team came together through adversity huge learning experience to be part of that team and see it come together amazing story in your first 20 years as a sort of full-time sailor, what skills do you think have you learned from there that you can transfer into your role as CEO now? Good question. The thing I've learned, I guess, in, in my sporting career is, is that you can't just accept anything as a given. And so really pushing the boundaries, really trying to push the team, not just on the water, but technically as a management team, you know, where can we find performance gains that might not be that obvious and not just accepting the status quo certainly that piece we were talking about uh, in terms of managing a, a sports team and the empathy piece and then translating that back to business is 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 huge if you can get the best out of the people around you whether that's in sports or in business you're going to be a much more successful outfit and i think that's just a continuous learning development isn't it those are probably i think the two key things that i've taken out of the last 20 odd years are you still introverted now? You said you were introverted as a boy, but obviously what you've achieved, it'd be hard to believe that you still might be introverted and speaking to a group would be difficult. Are you still, do you still have those traits? Well, I've had to overcome it because of what I wanted to do from a sporting perspective and a management perspective. But yeah, if I was left to my own devices, I probably, I probably would be. It's been a good thing for me, the career path that I've chosen and for, it has forced me to sort of come out of my shell and... Yeah, for the better, I'd, I'd like to think. I don't know, speak to some of my mates, they might, might, say, <laughs> might say something different. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're all different, aren't we? And, you know, we'll take different paths in life. And I just think, you know, the other thing I've, I've certainly learned is if you get an opportunity in life, then you've got to take it because it don't come around that often. So just, you know, to any youngsters out there, you know, if you get an opportunity to do something special go for it and give it 100%. Love that. What's the hardest part of your role as CEO now? It's. I think it's trying to find that balance between, you know, delegating and not micromanaging, but also keeping on top of the detail. So you, need, you obviously need really good people around you and you need to trust them, you know, to go out and achieve the, the goals that have been set out in, in their department or within the team. If for whatever reason you, you're, you're not reaching those targets... That's when it gets tricky because you've got to then delve in, try and work out what the issues are. You don't want to step on that person's toes, whether they're a manager or, or, or whoever's responsible. I think that's the, that's the biggest challenge. And it, it's really subtle, isn't it? It depends a lot on the individual. Some people potentially need a bit of a, a kick up the backside. Um, some people just need some support in certain areas where perhaps they haven't got the support underneath them or they haven't got the understanding. So it, it's always different. But that's the biggest challenge, I think. 
If you can see a difficult conversation coming up on the horizon, is there anybody that you have close to you can speak to about that to help you prepare? Yeah, good question. I mean, yes, is the answer. And, and I think it varies depending on the situation. I've, I've probably got a handful of people that, you know, I really respect as, you know, mentors or advisors that I could go to in different situations. You know, I mean, if it's really escalated to something pretty serious and then Jim Ratcliffe is somebody that I would go to and we would discuss some issues. You know, most often, I think your initial instinct tends to be right. But of course, it's nice to get some confirmation of that, isn't it? And just to share those challenges. And sometimes it can be you know, you can have to have some bloody awkward conversations. And you do learn from each one of those. You know, I remember the first person I had to ease out of the team being in sweats for days about ruining that person's career and or feeling that that might be the situation. And and then you kind of go for it a couple of times and then you get better at dealing with it and also better deal at dealing with that person as well to make it an easier transition, should we say. So... Yeah, learning process, but definitely having a few key people to call on to um, just as sounding boards. What, what do you like in those conversations? Are you Because I kind of have similar, probably much um, not to the same degree as you. Do you approach that with empathy or are you very matter of fact and black and white? Where are you? Where do you sort of pitch those conversations? Yeah, both. You have to be quite matter of fact because if you start waffling and sort of making out that maybe the thing's resolvable or can you know then you're just actually making life difficult more difficult for that person but then following that up with empathy in terms of well look you know where do we go from here how do we deal with this how do we deal with the rest of the team you know what's the best solution for you now moving forwards and supporting that person and you know one person i work with uh, martin whitmarsh who was of course the ceo of mclaren f1 and he was the ceo of our first cup team I learned a lot from him in terms of his ability um, to go through some pretty awkward conversations with people, but almost put an arm around them. And they come out of the meeting actually feeling like, you know, this was the best thing for their life and their career um, moving forward. And I'm, Bloody hell, how did you swing that one around? Um, so there's definitely ways of, of, of approaching these difficult situations and conversations where... Um, it might not be a great outcome for an individual, but if at the very least you can make them feel that certainly there's been a lot of thought gone into that decision and also where do they go next and how you can support them next for that development of their career and that will make a big difference. That's great advice. You've experienced leadership from so many different angles now. What do you think leadership is and how has it changed over the years? Well, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I mean, what what is leadership? Ultimately, it's it's pulling a team together, setting the goals, setting the standards and bringing the right people into the right roles, the right structure and then monitoring that as it comes forwards and you know where changes need to be made. If you're not achieving those goals, you try and make them to, to create a more efficient, more successful team or business. I think the role has changed a lot over the years because society has obviously changed you know, in terms of equality, what's tolerated in terms of, mm. you know, bullying and empathy and all of these traits, which, you know, if you think back to successful sports or businesses from, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, you know, what was tolerated then, there's no way you could act like that or run an organisation like that anymore. And rightly so. The requirements from a leadership perspective, I think, have changed massively, even in the last five, ten years or so. You've been a highly motivated individual now for a long time. What keeps you going? 
what keeps Ben Ainsley at that top level now? What's the goal? Well, he's setting those goals, isn't it? Um, the America's Cup, like I said, we never won it. Britain's never won it. And as a proud Brit and sailor, that really irks me. Mm. And so that, that genuinely is the motivation for myself and the rest of the team. If we can get that job done, that will be a special moment, certainly in our sport of sailing, but I think even for the, for the nation to actually tick the box. And it's the only sporting trophy I think we've never won. From a personal perspective, to keep learning and developing and sort of growing into this management role has been a really interesting, uh, you know, challenging process, but one that's been really rewarding and still a long way to go, a lot to learn, no doubt. But that's, again, that's a motivation. Well, it sounds like they've got the right guy to, to lead them to do it. I'm actually going to be so fascinated following that journey for the America's Cup and to, to hopefully bring it home one day. So, Ben, just want to thank you so much for your time. Honestly, one of the, one of the sporting greats has been a genuine privilege to watch you and inspire the nation over the past 20, 30 years. Keep doing the good work and, and thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Sam. And likewise, everything you've achieved in the sport as well is, is hugely impressive. So um, let's look forward to the future, huh? Appreciate it. Cheers, Ben. Thank you. I've wanted to speak to Ben for a while and it strikes me that he's another introvert. I didn't actually expect that. But something that shines through is his competitive nature. That was something that's well documented and I loved hearing about his ruthless mentality. But also he reflected on that and recognised that that wasn't necessarily the style he always had to adopt while he was a leader. I think it's really important to have that self-awareness as a leader about how you're making other people feel. That comes from experience and confidence. People in your team will often take their cues from you. So taking a moment to process and think rather than flying off the handle is so, so important. His leadership compass, I was really intrigued to find out about. But the word fun really struck me. As somebody who's so serious, making sure that you do have fun. Because there's going to be tough times no matter what walk of life you're in. Whether you're a sailor, whether you're in business, or whether you're a rugby player, make sure it's fun because it'll definitely help you get through the sticky patches. But what also shines through is just the importance of making sure you get good people around you. If you get good people around you, you'll be much more productive and much more happy in whatever you're doing. And that's something which we can certainly all apply. Do check out Ben and Georgie Ainsley's podcast, Performance People. They've had some great guests on from the world of business and sport, including Michael Johnson and his coach Clyde Hart, Toto and Susie Wolf, and Eddie and Barry Hearn. It's well worth a listen. Please keep the messages and feedback coming. You can email on captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on LinkedIn. Just search for Captains with Sam Warburton and make sure you follow that page so you don't miss any extra leadership content. Thanks again for listening. My guest next week is Rugby World Cup winner and former All Blacks captain, Kieran Reid. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.